Over the last several months, we've been diving into conversations around what, what is the Bible good for? Many of you were here for that series, and we just wrapped up a series on angels and demons talking about good and evil in our world. How do, we, how do we confront it? How do we fight it, find victory over it? And over the course of those two series, we asked you to submit your questions. No questions off limits, even though we might not have the best answer or the right answer. Our staff got really excited to dive into a conversation around your questions. And so today we're going to dive into that. We recorded answers to some of these questions, and so we're going to play those in a couple of parts. I'm excited by this because growing up in church, for me, religion and, and getting to know God was all about getting to know him in terms of the rules that he expected me to follow. Many of you have similar stories as I did, and so I, I walked around with, with a false impression of who God was because for me, asking questions wasn't really allowed. You were just expected to go along with it. And for me, that, that really came to a head in middle school when I didn't really know what to do with this God who, who was supposed to be loving and this God who, based on other people's representation of him, didn't really allow for much wiggle room. It was rigid. And so we're diving into conversations around that today with your questions. And so I'm going to get off the stage, stop talking. We're going to dive in and we're glad you're here. Check this out. How can we trust that this, the Bible, is what God wants for our lives? Well, I've been given two minutes to answer that question. That's such a big question. And so I don't think I could do it any justice. And so instead, I'm going to point you to the series we just wrapped up uh, called What is the Bible Good For? A lot of great information in that. So I encourage you to go back and watch that. But instead of trying to answer through historical facts and data, what I want to do is speak to the heart. You know, this book is, it wasn't uh, written by Greek philosophers. It's not a Western book. It's an Eastern book. And the geography of thought and the thought pattern is all Hebrew. And the Hebrew didn't write to the eye. They wrote to the ear. And that's the, the difference between Western thought and Eastern thought. You see, in the West, we want to prove through what we can see or even disprove through what we can't see instead of listening to what God may have for us. I think about King Solomon. King Solomon asked for wisdom from God, but it's, it's actually way better than that. That word wisdom is, is not the actual word. What he asked for was a lev shema. Lev meaning our entireness, our muchness, our, our allness. And shema meaning to hear, to hear the heart of God. And that's the distinction. And I think that's how we have to engage scripture with a lev shema. I think about people in Iran and India and in China and in underground churches right now, persecuted for their faith. They can't even have a Bible in the open, let alone all together for risk of their safety. So they maybe have pages of scripture or maybe a page of scripture. And I doubt they sit around the circle and go, well, hey, why don't we have this book or that book? Or why don't we have the gospel of Thomas or even the secret life of Thomas? You see, they're not worried about what they don't have. They're worried about what's right in front of them. And they're not engaging it through the eye only. They're engaging it through the ear and letting that transform their heart, letting God transform their heart. So I think the same has to be true for us. We have to stop trying to prove and disprove by what we see or what we can't see. And instead, we have to turn the ears of our heart towards God and be transformed through that. 
And so maybe stop worrying about what's not in front of you and start worrying about what is in front of you. And those are my thoughts. What about the Gospel of Thomas and books in the Catholic Bible and other missing Gospels? Well, in reality, the New Testament was written by eyewitnesses or for eyewitnesses during the lifetimes of those who were actually traveling and those who had actually seen Jesus alive from the dead. And it began to be passed from church to church, from city to city. And eventually, as years went by, the pastors and leaders affirmed that these were from the eyewitnesses. These can be trusted as what is true about Jesus. About 100 to 200 years later, a, a, a Gnosticism began to develop, a different way of viewing Jesus. And those folks began to write their gospels, their stories, which were not based on eyewitness accounts, even if they attributed it to someone who was actually with Jesus. And so it was at about that time that they began to pull together and officially create the canon. And it seems like a long time for us, but they didn't have wireless communication. It took a long time to pull everybody together. We can trust that what we have as the New Testament is what God wants us to have. And by the way, when things like the Da Vinci Code come out, you should know it's in the fiction section because it's fiction. So why are there many versions of the Bible? Which is the most accurate and which is most beneficial? The purpose of the Bible is not just information, but also transformation. So it's important for us to be able to understand what we're reading, which is why there are so many different versions of the Bible. Scripture was originally written in Hebrew and in Greek and then translated over time into different languages such as English. Some of the translations are more idea for idea or concept for concept, while some are more word for word. As we know, there's so much nuance in language. For example, if I say chips in English here in America versus if I say chips in English in England, we're going to have two different meanings. And so it's important that we use both types of translations to get a holistic understanding of Scripture and God's Word. Which rules from the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, still apply? I mean, it seems like Christians arbitrarily keep the sexual morality ones, but throw out the ritual ones? And that's a great question. You know, when we think about the Old Testament laws, we have to remember that when they were written, they were actually written within a theocratic government or a theocracy. They didn't live in a democracy or a monarchy. It was a theocracy. There was no separation of church and state like we have here in our context. And so when they wrote the laws, it really folded in all different aspects of life, whether it was civil, ceremonial, or moral. And as we read the Old Testament, we actually have to do a little bit of parsing ourselves, like what was for the context, what was uh, the civil law, uh, what was ceremonial, or having to do with the temple life of the Israelites, something that we keep separate from the state here uh, in the United States. And then there's also the moral issues, what's actually right and wrong. So I'll give you a quick example. When it comes to doing something that we don't like doing, but we have to do, it's, we're talking about paying our taxes, for example, there are civil, even ceremonial ways that we go about it, and they all envelop this thing that we call morality. 
there's a, a civil obedience or almost civil responsibility when it comes to paying our taxes. We have to show up. We have to pay on April 15th or we pay, the, uh, pay for the extension or file for the extension. Uh, there's a ceremony to it, right? We have to do it online or maybe we have an accountant actually do all of the dirty work for us. And then there's also the moral issue, uh, showing up as a, a responsible citizen. That is a right or wrong thing. Uh, so the same thing is true when you look at some of the Old Testament law. For example, we don't keep some of the kosher eating laws because we really do believe that Jesus has come to fulfill the law, uh, meaning that all the different sacrifices, all of the rituals that used to take place actually pointed to the coming of Jesus uh, as the great sacrifice, as a high priest. Uh, so we don't follow some of the ceremonial laws anymore because they've actually been fulfilled in Jesus. But some of the civil laws as well that were only particular to the people of Israel, those we, we don't follow. But when it comes to big moral ones like the Ten Commandments, for example, do not commit adultery. That's something that is true across all cultures, across all time. All right, so Ricky, of course, uh, they give us... Uh the dumb questions because we're youth pastors. Uh, unique, um, unique questions. Well, yeah, unique. Uh, it's not like we have degrees or anything. Um, yeah, it's all good. I didn't go to Bible college. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah. Not in crippling debt for any reason. For sure. So, so for the first question actually came in in crayon. Uh, it's, uh, could Jesus fly? I guess if he wanted to, if he really had to be somewhere quick, I, yeah. I don't see why not. But. but there's that one time he forgot his cape. Yeah. And so he just ascended into heaven. And he's going to come back and get it, right? Yeah, that's why he's coming back. That's okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. I missed that part. How can we believe the Bible when it seems to contradict with science? Like Genesis says, the earth and all species of life were created in seven days. Yet we know the earth existed billions of years before human life. You know, oftentimes apparent discrepancies between science and the Bible can find resolve if we don't just quickly come to judgment and throw the Bible out but we study and try to understand. So for instance, yes, there are Christians who believe that the days of creation in Genesis are literal 24 hours, um, and they have their reasons for that, but there are also many Bible-believing Christians who believe the days were actually long periods of time, even millions of years. And I believe there's room in the Bible to interpret it that way, and I'll explain why. Really three reasons. The first is, you have to remember Genesis is being written by Moses. So apparently God gave Moses a vision of creation since Moses wasn't there. And so it could be that the, the days where, where Moses is saying, and then there was evening and morning the first day, evening and morning the second day, are actual days of Moses receiving revelation. So in that first evening and morning, he receives revelation of watching God create the universe and space-time. The second evening morning, he watches the formation of, of the earth and the waters on the earth, etc. Now, the second reason is because the word, the Hebrew word for day is yom, and it's used flexibly, just like we use day. So we use day to mean a literal 24-hour period, but we also say things like in the day of Jesus or in the day of the dinosaurs, and that, of course, represents long periods of time. Well, actually, in Genesis chapter 2, so right after Genesis 1, the word yom is used to mean a long period of time. It says, in the day, or yom, God created the heavens and earth, so the whole of creation. And so yom right there in the Bible is used to mean a long period of time. 
The other thing we remember is that in 1 Peter 3, it says that to the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. So God's time works differently than, than our time. The, the third reason, though, is because there's this cadence of then there was evening and morning the first day, evening and morning the second day. But when it comes to the seventh day, it doesn't say there was evening and morning the seventh day. And we find out that God rested on the seventh day. And we can see from other places in scripture like uh, Psalm 95 and Hebrews 4 that God is still in that day of rest and that we can enter that day of rest. So the seventh day apparently hasn't stopped yet. So it's clearly longer than just a short period of time. But here's the main point is that as Christians, we can hold to the things that we confidently know. You can confidently know that Jesus was foretold, his coming was foretold by God so we could know. His life, his death and resurrection, incredible evidence. So we can trust what we know about Jesus and, and what Jesus said. We can hold tightly to those, and then there are other secondary or tertiary matters of Scripture that Bible-believing Christians might differ and argue over, but we can wrestle with them without dividing over them. You said the Bible is one consistent story, but it seems like the Old Testament God is a God of wrath, or the New Testament God is a God of love. How do you reconcile this blatant difference? Uh, I'm going to answer this question in three short parts. First, it's really important how we take in Scripture. And there's multiple ways we take in Scripture. Many of us, we really only hear it on a weekend or we listen to a podcast or somebody else's opinion of Scripture. It's really important that you and I take the time to read Scripture so that we're not assuming what other people are saying and how they interpret Scripture is true, but that we take ownership of reading Scripture. So that's one just to be aware of. Number two, there really is a consistent story of God throughout Scripture. Uh, and there are two major themes that we see a God of love and a God of justice in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Hebrews 13 tells us that Jesus, who is God, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we have to take that at face value that where are the pieces of God's love throughout all of Scripture and the pieces of God's justice? And really in the Old Testament, we know this, when you go to Deuteronomy chapter 6, the first law is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all your mind, all your soul. So the challenge isn't just obeying God in the Old Testament. It truly is loving God. And in the New Testament, we see him sending his son Jesus out of this overwhelming love to die for you and I. And then throughout scripture, you hear about justice, that God really does care about what is right and what is wrong. Here's a practical application, the third part. Libby and I are married. We've been married for 22 years. We have five kids. And the age difference between our oldest and our youngest is 15 years. Our oldest kids inevitably tell us, you're so much easier on the younger kids. You were hard on us. You made it very difficult for us. And then our younger kids say, the older kids have all these crazy memories and all these vacations and all these cool things you did. And the truth is, it's the same home, same culture, same values, same consistency, just different contexts in which they see us as parents. We were younger, had one or two kids. We could afford the big vacation. Now we have five kids. We get more creative with vacations. And then we've learned how to better lead our kids. And so it isn't that we don't love them or we're harder on one or the other. It's how each of them interpret how we love them and how we bring justice. It's the same way when we go to scripture. All of us bring us to scripture. 
but I want to remind you that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. A God of love and a God of justice. Yeah, I still think my favorite question so far is, could Jesus fly? I just like to picture Jesus just whipping around. Like, I don't know, maybe it's the Marvel nerd in me that loves to think of Jesus flying. But here's the thing. We want to kind of call a time out partway through the questions that our staffers got to answer because we want to sit in, in the reality that many of us are feeling when we, when we engage around questions in church or really questions in, in any part of our lives. And, and the reality, I think, shows up differently for some of us than others. And so I want, I want to pause and just invite everyone to consider a season in your life. Maybe, maybe you find yourself in this season right now where, where you, you were questioning something where something about what was going on around you didn't make a lot of sense. You were looking at circumstances or you were looking at the journey of your life playing out. And, and for whatever reason, you, you know what this is, it, it stirred up questions in you. Maybe, you. maybe you had questions for God. God, why is this happening? God, what is going on? God, are you even there? I think back to my story and I, I remember several seasons where I had questions like that for God, and they led to questions of, God, if it doesn't feel like you're there, are you? And if you're not there, then what am I doing here? And, and so I just want to pause and invite you to consider a season of your life where you, you had questions, where you doubted something, where, where something didn't make sense to you. And think about the feelings that came along with that. Was it uncertainty? Was it, was it doubt? Was it fear? And see, this is the reason why I love this place called Gateway. It's because we aren't afraid to step into the questions. We aren't afraid to create spaces like this where, unlike what I was told growing up in church, which was, it, you don't, it's not okay to have questions. You need to get over here and, and figure all of this out. We believe in creating excellent environments where wherever you're at in your faith journey, maybe you're asking God some of these questions right now. Maybe you've found yourself in past seasons asking God similar questions. It's okay, because I don't know if you've ever thought about this. The interactions I read of Jesus in the Bible, and I don't have a number, I don't have a statistic for you, but the interactions I read of Jesus in the Bible oftentimes are people coming and doing what? They're asking him questions. Hey, Jesus, this version of God that you're bringing us, it's different than what we grew up with. It's disruptive. Jesus, here are my questions, because if that's true, it's going to change some things about my life. It's going to change some things about my reality. And Jesus was a master at sitting, people, sitting with people in their questions. And so that's why we're doing this. That's why we're doing it. It's not so that we can leave spaces like this with knowledge that we can take to our friends who maybe aren't sure about faith and give them an answer that sounds good because our pastor answered it in a video. It's so that we can sit in the tension of knowing it's okay to have questions because God is ready to sit with us in those. He's patient and he's good. And so we're gonna continue with part two. We just wrapped up a series on angels and demons, and so this next round of questions dives into some of the questions you all had around some of the topics we talked about there. This takes on a little bit more of a good versus evil, some of the demonic, some of the spiritual, and so if that grabs your attention, these are awesome questions. Watch this. (music) 
If the forces of darkness know they will lose, then what is evil's end game? So we see over and over uh, demons in the New Testament interact with Jesus and they say things like, have you come to judge us before our time? Have you come to torture us before our time, right? So they know things are not going to end well, but their mission is to prolong what scripture calls the day of the Lord, right? This moment where Jesus will return and will make everything in creation right again. In other places in the Bible, it's called the time of the Gentiles. In essence, evil wants to drag as many people as possible, as far away from God as they can. That's why Jesus activated his disciples and thus activates us as his followers today to reverse this cause life by life. Uh, in fact, it's to storm the gates of hell one change hard at a time. Acts chapter two is this moment, this beautiful initial reversal of the Tower of Babel where the nations go astray and it's God reclaiming the nations under Jesus to himself. Something that he's still doing today and he's gonna do fully when he returns. So hell knows that it can't stand a chance uh, and it just does what I did with my college papers. It prolongs and procrastinates the inevitable. What about all the evil done by Christians? The Inquisition, the Crusades? Yes, without a doubt, those who call themselves Christians have been deceived by evil and done horrific things in the name of God. This isn't new. Romans 2.23 says, You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. God hates it when his name is used to do evil. In fact, God gave the Israelites 10 primary guidelines to follow. And one of the very first ones was do not take the Lord's name in vain. We often presume that to mean don't say OMG, but actually it's far deeper than that. The Israelites would have known that taking the Lord's name in vain meant associating God's name with behavior, actions, and circumstances that were not of God. This guideline was given to the Israelites because we as a people have a proclivity to connect God with our own agendas, however twisted they may be. Remember, it was the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the experts of the law who crucified Jesus in the name of God. So what this means is that we can't just look at what people say, but how they act. And we can't judge a perfect God by imperfect people. So yes, Grave evil has been done by people who say they're Christian, and that sucks. It continues to be our reality today, but our invitation is to follow God's will and his ways, living in the way of his perfect love and perfect justice. All right, more questions from middle school boy. Um, could God make a rock so big that he couldn't lift it? Absolutely. He did already. Uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, the people's champ. So where did demons come from? Are they the same as the rulers and principalities that Paul talked about? Take it away, Ricky. So short answer is no, demons and the rulers and principalities, they are not the same, uh, but they are on the same team, right? Spiritual darkness. They're just, demons are just at the bottom of the hierarchy, if you will. 
Uh, one view, in fact, in Hebrew tradition is that the demons that we see in the New Testament, the ones that use people as sock puppets and possessions, are actually the disembodied spirits of the Nephilim, these figures that we see in Genesis chapter 6, right before the flood event. If you want some more information on that, I would highly recommend reading Dr. Michael Heiser's book, Unseen Realm. Now, the rulers and principalities that we see were, uh, at, uh, at first, they were good spiritual forces that God assigns after the Tower of Babel to rule the nations, but everything goes wrong. They begin accepting human worship, uh, they begin leading mankind astray, accepting human sacrifice, and everything spirals out of control. It's why God pronounces judgment on these figures uh, in places in the Old Testament, such as Psalm 82, um, and we see this held worldview of cosmic geography, if you will, right? Rulers and principalities over regions and nations all throughout the Old Testament, whether it's foreign gods, whether it's the figure in Daniel that we see, that Prince of Persia figure, or Paul when he visits uh, Mars Hill and he's talking to the philosophers and he says, hey, I see that you have all these statues of these gods. Let me tell you about this unknown God that you have a statue for. So long answer short, demons, principalities, same team, bad guys, just different rank. And what if you know someone who is demon-possessed? Don't date them. <laughs> no, seriously, I would be very cautious to declare that you know someone has a demon or is demon-possessed. First of all, we can't know. And, and second of all, um, we have a, a wrong characterization of demon possession. That actually is not biblical. The Bible never uses the word demon possession. It uses the word demonized, which is more a picture of being spiritually oppressed or, or tormented. And here's what we have to realize, that the demonic are like rats that feed on spiritual garbage. So uh, if you have spiritual and emotional garbage in your life, like, like shame or pride or bitterness or hatred or resentment or unforgiveness or self-hatred, those kinds of things, are like the garbage they feed on. So get rid of the garbage and you get rid of the rats. Keep the garbage and they have a reason to stick around and feed and grow stronger and just make your problems worse. But the demonic are not really the source of your problems, the spiritual garbage is. So if you suspect that someone is, is struggling in this way and being oppressed or tormented in some way, first thing to do is help them know they have faith in Jesus. Because when we have faith in Jesus, we have a, a power source and authority, as we're, we'll talk about, uh, to overcome that. So that's first. And then the second thing, help them get rid of the spiritual garbage. Help them know what God says is true to clean up all shame, to make amends with people, to, to, get, to get right, um, because that, that takes away that stronghold. Um, it says in scripture, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So you can resist. In Christ, you can resist. We see Jesus doing this by standing on what's true and resisting the lie. So in Matthew 4, Jesus is tempted by Satan. And every time Satan accuses him and, and lies to him. But interestingly, Satan even quotes scripture, but just twists it to make it into a lie uh, to try to tempt Jesus. Every time what Jesus does is he stands on what God says is true in the Bible. He quotes the Bible. And Satan keeps coming at different angles, but after three times, Jesus resists him with the truth, and he, he goes. 
you can do the same and you can help others do the same. And then the third thing is help people know the authority they have if they have accepted Jesus into their life, if they've accepted God's forgiveness through what Christ did. You know, Jesus said, I've given you, his followers, all authority to overcome all the power of the evil one. And so if someone feels like they are being tormented or oppressed, sometimes maybe it's with suicidal thoughts or very damaging, discouraging or self-defeating thoughts, they can, they can just take authority and say, no, I am a child of God. I belong to God. And in Jesus' name and by his authority, leave. You have no right here. And just stand in that and keep in that and you'll find they start to leave you alone. So the long-term solution is learning truth, like Jesus said, to, to live by his truth and it'll set you free. In the short term, many times prayer can really help. And that's where I would encourage people to go see our prayer team as well, as that can help release and give you freedom. Uh, okay, so this one came in from a sixth grade boy. Um, if uh, both football teams are praying to win, how does God determine Who's going to win? Ricky, that's that's all you, man. Easy. Uh, it's in uh, 3 Corinthians. Uh, he actually flips a coin, just like you and I do. Except if it's uh, UT, uh, he's never in favor for that one. So Obviously. Yeah. Why is the God of the Bible a man? Why a patriarchal God revealed in a patriarchal society? So, hey, guys, one of the questions that, that you sent in is why is God referred to as a man in the Bible? It's a great question. First and foremost, God is not a man. Uh, God is not a woman. But the question comes from a really great place because throughout scripture, we do notice that God is referred to as him or his or he or father as opposed to mother. And so you can see where there's some tension that I think we get from that. It's important just to remember that the time that the Bible was written, the societies that the Bible was written in and to and, and from were very patriarchal. Now, this is in a broken world where sin has led to a place where, where societies are so patriarchal, but that is the reality of the times when the Bible was written. Most importantly, it's important to remember that Jesus comes along and the best representation of God that we have is Jesus, right? God in human form. And he comes along and immediately starts to do things that shake up the culture at large immediately, crossing all kinds of these boundaries that had been put in place, like he would have women following him as his disciples, right? You think of Mary and, and Mary Magdalene. You think of Joanna. You think of uh, others who were really students of Jesus, which was unheard of in the day. You think of the way that he crosses, um, crosses a cultural line just to go and sit with a Samaritan woman, a woman of very questionable reputation. And much to his disciples' surprise, he goes to meet with her. And ultimately, you think of the empty tomb, which it was the women who first found the tomb empty. So really, the women first come to find a resurrected Jesus, and that is all by God's choice. That's really important because, again, God is not a man. God is not a woman. In fact, I bring us to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, where we read this. I'm sorry, verse 27. So God created man in his own image, and in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
But it's important to remember we're reading English language here translated from Hebrew writings where it really says that so God created Adam. And the word translates not man like me, like a man sitting here in front of you, but as mankind or humankind. So he created humankind in his own image. And then we read male and female, he created them. And I would say that the best way for us to think of God is that he is best represented, at least in human form, by both man and woman. In fact, I'd take it one step further to say it's really, it's in community together that we best represent the image of God. Thus, the church itself really best represents the fullness of God. So we got one more question, and we felt like it was appropriate to answer this question live in a room if you're watching online, because this is, this is a personal question. It starts to take the conversation a little bit closer to home for many of us. When you hear me read this question, you're going to think to your story, or you're going to think of people in your life. And, and so this, this becomes personal. I'll read the question. It goes like this. If a person is committed to loving and serving others as well as growing to better themselves, why is it necessary to have a relationship with God? Why God, right? And and it's a good question, and I think the first thing we have to recognize is that evil is always going to try and convince us that we can be good, loving, caring people on our own, without God. You think back to the very beginning of the Bible, Satan as the serpent in the garden, manipulating Adam and Eve. What does he, what does he ask them? He asks them, did God really say? Did God really say that this will lead to a better life? And I think back to my college experience. For me, this is when my pursuit of faith, my pursuit of God really hit ahead because after getting burned by the church and ultimately coming to the conclusion that religion was simply a list of rules that you either followed or didn't and now somehow had to figure out how you were going to get out of this hole that you created for yourself, I said, I'm, I'm done with this. And I started to reject God. I started to go my own way, convincing myself in my head that I didn't need God, that I was smart enough to figure all of this out on my own. Many of you have heard my story. I studied engineering. I have an analytical brain. And so for me, this was actually pretty easy to rationalize why everything that God said was not in my best interest based on how I saw people showing up and ultimately conclude that I was smart enough that I had what it takes to figure out life on my own. And many of you have heard that tape play in your head right? The tape still plays in my head if I'm not careful to be aware of it. The tape that says, Ross, you have to prove yourself, that you have to earn people's respect, that you have to earn, that you have to prove, that you have to sacrifice, that you have to do all these things in order to silence the voice that's saying you're not enough. And, you know, we talk about sin in the church and And sin is just our way of saying that as human beings, we've gone our own way. We've rejected God in our lives and said, God, I I, I know what you're saying over here, but I can actually figure this out on on my own, on our own. And because God is a loving God, he gives us that choice, right? He gives us the choice to say, God, I don't want this. I want my own way. But if we were created 
by a loving God for loving relationship, then to reject God is to reject the purpose for which we were created. And while many of us can can fake it for a while, we can all think of the moments in our stories where it stopped working, right? I know exactly where I was when I opened my hands and said, God, this is not working anymore. I cannot do this on my own. I need you. And because God is good, he made a way through Jesus. He made a way through Jesus. Many of you, whether you've been in church a long time or you're just checking things out, you know this verse, right? Because it's been popularized by our culture. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Why? So that whoever believes in him will not perish and have eternal life. God did everything it took up to sending his son to die on a cross for my sin and for your sin, us choosing to go our own way so that when we were ready, We could come to God open-handed and say, God, my way is not working anymore. I need you. I need what Jesus did to count for me. And that's all it takes. It's all it takes for Jesus to come into our lives and start transforming us. He started transforming me and it didn't look awesome overnight. I'll just be honest with you. It actually got really hard, but as I failed and as I continued to fall, Jesus was right there to pick me back up and say, hey, we're we're gonna keep going. We're gonna keep going because I'm in this with you. I love you enough to be in this with you. So the question becomes, do you have a relationship with Jesus? For many of us, the answer is yes. And and maybe the, the reminder is that he's with us, that it is a relationship for a reason. It goes both ways. He wants to be in this with you. For many of us, the answer is, Ross, I don't even know where to start. How do I have a relationship with Jesus? It's really easy. All we have to do is tell him, Jesus, my way is not working anymore. I need what you did on a cross to count for me. And when we surrender our will to Jesus, he brings the transformation. That's why a relationship with him is so important. We can fake it for a long time because many of us have tried, haven't we? It's only when Jesus enters into our lives that our lives actually start to change. And so here's what I wanna do. I wanna pray for us. I wanna pray for us. And then the band's gonna lead us in part of the song that we just sang. And my invitation is to, as they're singing, just reflect on where you're at right now, right? Make this personal, make this about you. What are your questions that if God were sitting across from the table from you right now, you would ask him? And are we willing to believe that he actually wants to enter into this life with us, that he wants to come alongside us and link arms with us so that we never ever have to do this alone. Let me pray for us. God, I am just so thankful that you are that kind of God, that you are a God who left heaven to show how much you love us, that you are for us, that you are good, that you want good for our lives. And many of us came in this morning, whether we realized it or not, God, we have questions of our own. We're, we're not sure what we feel or what we believe because the world is telling us something different or the circumstances of our lives are telling us something different. But God, we're holding on to a hope that if you are good, you can bring transformation in our lives. And so Jesus, we surrender to you. And we don't know how you'll do it. We don't know when you do it but we know that growth comes in and through you, that transformation comes in and through you. So we give it to you, Jesus, and pray that you would do something amazing. And we pray this in your name, amen, amen.